thinking as Larry and the worship team led us in that, How Great Is Our God, there are not many songs, and I may have told you this before, but there are not many songs that I can remember the very first time I heard them, or the very first time someone led me in worship. But that song, for some reason, I can remember. Years ago, I was at the BCM with the privilege to preach one night, and the college students got up, and, and the, the girl that was leading the vocal said, I want to introduce the college students to a new song, and we sang... How Great Is Our God. I had never heard it before, and I think most of the college students hadn't either. And it was, it was such a great worship time. And anytime I, I sing it, I, I think back to that very first time we sang it with college students. And, and so Larry and your team, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with God's people this morning because this is the weekend that Emberly is due. And we have been waiting for Jamie to get with the program and get us a baby that we can see and hold. We're wanting to meet her, um, but she's not cooperating. We were laughing in Sunday school that maybe she wants a May birthday rather than an April, so she keeps putting it off, but because they thought this weekend might be very busy and hectic, Skylar asked if I could be ready to fill in for him, and then Emberly has not cooperated. I will tell you, just so you'll know, um, you probably know this, but my wife works every day with Jamie. They're teachers at the same school, and their classrooms are literally right next door to each other. And I was texting Skylar about this this week. She comes home. She loves Jamie so much. Um, you would think it's her own sister who's pregnant, the way Wendy prays for Jamie and is concerned for Jamie and the pregnancy and talks about Jamie. I finally said the other day, she's just a coworker. And when he was like, you're just a husband. <laughs> she's not a co-worker, she's my sister. And that's, that's, that's the way we view them. And so we're, we're praying for this week, or today, or tonight. Uh, Jamie just said she's so ready. But it's my privilege this morning to get to open up God's Word and give Skylar a break because of the busyness in their life this week. One of the most common of all our failures, all our weaknesses as fallen sinful people, is that we tend to make other people small and we make ourselves great. That is a common failure among all of us. It's so common that men joke that when a bunch of guys are together and one of them tells a story about something he did, the next man who tells the story tells a greater story about something he did. So that the joke is that the first liar never stands a chance because it'll constantly get bigger and bigger. But the fact is it's subtle and it's selfish and it's sinful. This tendency we have to have a big view of ourselves and a big view of our accomplishments and a big view of our own abilities and a small view of other people. And it sometimes shows up in the way we treat people. We treat people like they're less than us, less important. I remember being with a group of guys one time, and a young man was telling a story about something he had done, and there was an older gentleman, a very mature man, who I loved greatly. And I knew he had done something very similar to what this young man was talking about doing. And when this young guy finished his story, I was waiting for the older man to tell a much more incredible story along the same lines, and he just, he just remained silent. 
and let this young man tell his story and what happened to him and the older man as a sign of maturity, just let that be the only story told. That's not us most of the time. We would like for people to know our big view of ourselves. This sinful attitude we have reaches its extreme when we have a great view of ourselves and not just a small view of others, but a small view of God or no view of God at all. It shows up sometimes when people, um, as if they were writing the equation of their life on a marker board, and all the moving parts and all the parts of the equation that's going on in their life, and when you look at the equation, and every day they're working the equation of their life, and in that equation there is no variable for God. He's not in their equation at all for their life. I'd like for us to turn to a passage this morning whose truths help us with our oversized view of ourselves and our undersized view of God. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of James in the New Testament. It's a common passage we're going to read this morning, but one that I think will help us with this oversized view we have of our own accomplishments and abilities and importance. James chapter 4, one of the most practical books in the New Testament that deals with real-life issues. But when you get to chapter 4, toward the end of that chapter, in verse 13, James is going to draw our attention to this very problem, our big view of us and our small view of God. He says in verse 13, Come now, you who say. Let me just stop right there and just say something about how he introduces this. Um, James is wanting to draw these people attention to the issue he's going to talk about, and so he starts with this call for attention. It's a summons. Come now, you who say. He does it again, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich people. It's very similar to the way, some of the, the way some of the Old Testament prophets began their attacks on rebellious Israel. The wording is very similar to that. It's, hey, come sit down, gather in close, because we need to talk. In fact, I need to talk, you need to listen. And James is very to the point here when he starts in verse 13. Come now, gather close, you better listen. It's similar to maybe the way your parents called you at times. I don't know, maybe your parents were kind enough to do this, but I remember growing up, it happened to my brothers and I all the time. But if we had friends over to play in the yard or maybe in the house, and my parents needed to talk to one of us because we were in trouble, and they were kind enough not to do it in front of our friends, and we might be outside playing, and mom would step out on the back porch and say, hey, Doug, get in here. And just the tone of it and what she said let me know it wasn't that she had the Kool-Aid mixed up ready for my friends and I that had been out playing. Get in here meant we can either have this conversation in front of all your friends or you can get in here. James is saying, hey, um, gather in here. Come now, because what I want to talk to you about is just that serious. So he says in verse 13, Come now, stop what you're doing, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, 
and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and carry on business and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for just a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right things that he ought to do and fails to do them, for him it is sin. Guys, this is a passage that absolutely deals head-on with our big view, inflated view of ourselves and our small view of God. And I just want to talk to you about it this morning in a very simple outline, really just two points. What's man's problem and what's God's solution? So what's man's problem? James says our problem is that we have a mouth that says certain things. Or more subtly, we have a heart that actually believes certain things. We believe we have the right to decide where we will go, when we will go, how long we'll stay there, what we'll do while we're there, and whether or not we will be successful. Look at verse 13 again. Today or tomorrow, that's when. We'll go to this town, that's where. We'll spend a year there. That's how long we'll take business and trade. That's what we'll do, and we'll make a profit. That's the belief that we'll be successful. That's the attitude of the person James says, you better come in here and listen. But it's worse than that because in verse 16, he says, not only do you believe you're totally in control of your future, when, where, how long, what you're going to do, and whether you'll be successful, verse 16 says, you're arrogant about it. You boast and brag about your ability to map out your future. It's self-assurance. It's an equation without God in it. It's presumption. Or as one writer said, it's calculated arrogance on our part. It's not we just stumbled into being arrogant about it. These people believe they can pick when and where and how long and what they're going to be doing and whether they'll find success at it. And they're so sure of it, they enjoy boasting in their arrogance about it. And he says in verse 16, you brag in your arrogance and it's evil. It's a wicked thing you do. It's not just unwise to have this attitude and brag about it. Jesus says it's actually evil. This is a character issue for us. What they say reveals their heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So even if their words don't say, we're going to go to this and that city on this date and do this and be successful, that's the attitude of their heart. And this pride makes them love to announce this to everybody to their own glory. I have my future mapped out. And I'm enjoying telling you about it. And I'll even brag about it. Who's James talking to here? When he says, gather in here close, I want to talk to you about an attitude you have that's evil and wicked. He may be talking to Christians. 
Or he may be talking to professing Christians, people who claim they're Christians but they're really not. Or he may be talking to absolute pagans. The fact is we're not sure. There, there are places where in James he's very specific about who he's talking to and he uses the term brothers and we know he's talking to Christians. And other times in, the, in this short book, it's obvious he's talking to lost people. But in verses 13 through 16, he doesn't say brothers or pagans. So he could be talking to Christians. Because when you read this and you look at what he expects them to do, it would be very difficult for a non-Christian to be able to do what James says they need to do. So he may very well be speaking to us if this creeps into our attitude in life. The root problem here is arrogance. James is describing practical atheism. There are lots of people who would never say they're an atheist, but they live every day planning out their future with no regard for God. That's practical atheism, whether you say you are one or not. James is not condemning planning for the future. He's not condemning making a profit in the future. That's not what he's addressing. He's addressing independent living. What's condemned here is you believing you can pull life off without God in the equation. It's the attitude that I will make my plans with no thought of God. It's someone who says, I'm great, and my plans are great, and my ability to pull them off is great. I'm great, and God's small. He's so small, I don't even have to consider him in my plans. These people are so confident, they're boasting and bragging about when, where, what, how long, and whether they'll be successful. They believe, folks, that all of life is in their hands. And they love talking about it. And James says, this is an evil thing. In verse 16, God says, this is a problem. Now, I was thinking through what this looks like today. Sometimes this attitude is very blatant in people's lives. You might have someone who's going to tell you exactly what they're going to do in their first 100 days in office if they get elected. And 100 days passes, and it really didn't look like what they said. But I hear people talk about what they're going to do in the future, the exact things, and they'll get it pulled off in 100 days, and there's no mention of God at all in the plans. Or sometimes it's more subtle in our lives. We make plans about our education students, or we make plans about our jobs, or we make plans about moving to a new place. We make plans about our kids, or our investments, or our retirement, or our vacation, and where we're going to go, and we make those plans with no real prayer. No real seeking God's will. We have this self the sense of independence, and we make these everyday plans in our life with no sense of our dependence on God. No heartfelt acknowledgement that if this isn't His will, I'm sunk. That's what James is talking about. Come in here close, you people who say, I'm going to do this and this and this. And then you boast and brag about your amazing plans and your strength to pull them off on your own. 
So what's man's problem? James 4 says it's your big view of yourself. Folks, this infects all of us. At times, all of us have an oversized view of ourselves. It is arrogant independence. It's bragging based on the assumption that we control things. And it's evil in God's sight. That's our problem in James chapter 4. So what's God's solution to this problem? James mentions three humbling truths. I'm just going to mention these three truths that really do humble us to the core. And it's God's solution to our oversized view of us and our too small view of him. In verse 13, the first truth he says is that life is uncertain. Verse 13, those of you who say, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. In verse 13, the people are saying, I know exactly what I'm going to do for the next year. In verse verse 14, James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Life's uncertain. You're making these boasts about 12 months from now, and the fact is you can't even predict accurately into the future what 24 hours is going to bring. He says in verse 14, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? This is so uncertain. Because we, we can't control the future. So to make great boasts without including God in the equation about what your future looks like is arrogant on our part, and God's first truth to fix that is to remind us You can't predict a year from now because you can't predict tomorrow. You know, in our hearts, how hard is is it for us as adults to acknowledge to kids and grandkids that most of life is out of our control? The truth is, we're all one phone call away from having our greatest plans turned upside down. We're one phone call away from that. A bunch of our college students this morning are overrunning the Oklahoma City bombing Memorial Marathon. Got a text from our son who's running part of the relay in it. Uh, cold and dreary. They said it's a horrible day to run a marathon. A bunch of these college students that are over there, we, we love them at Trinity. One of them in particular I've loved with all my heart for 19 years. And they'll be driving back across on I-40 to come home this afternoon. One phone call about a wreck with the college students in our church. Almost all of my plans for the next month could be totally upended, and it's one phone call. I have no idea what tomorrow will bring, and you don't either. And so how on earth can we have this arrogant attitude that I can chart my course for the next year when God says you don't even know tomorrow? James says we have to acknowledge we cannot control tomorrow. Life is uncertain. I cannot predict perfectly the future. And this truth deals a blow to my big view of myself. Verse 14 says life's uncertain from our perspective. Truth number two, he follows up in verse 14 with life is short. Life's not just uncertain, but it's short. He says in verse 14, What is your life for you're a mist that appears for just a little while and then vanishes? Not only can you not control tomorrow, your life's just a mist. That's how long you're going to live from God's perspective. 
James says, you're so arrogantly claiming to know exactly where you're going to live in a year, you may not even be alive in a year. You may not be alive tomorrow. Your life's just a mist. The only other place this word is used in the New Testament in the original language, we don't have to turn there today, but in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he uses this exact word. When he's talking, he's quoting Joel in the Old Testament, and he says at the end of times there's going to be fire, and there's going to be hailstorms, and there's going to be vapors of smoke, is the way it's said in Acts chapter 2. It's the exact same word. Your life's just a puff of smoke. Your life's just a mist. The length of your life is like the breath you see on a cold morning when you breathe out, and it's here for a minute, and then it's gone. James is saying, how can a mist be arrogant about how powerful it is? Your, Your life's so short. We think it's long sometimes, but it's not. Life's uncertain and life is short. And and how can we have this attitude like I'm in total control when we're just a mist? The length of our life humbles us. James says your life is so short you cannot be an arrogant, boastful, independent, self-confident puff of smoke. James is not the only one to stress this truth. In David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, as he's gathered all the people together, David prays this, For we are strangers before you, O God, and we're sojourners, as all of our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. It's King David crying out to God, My life just feels like a shadow. The same truths are taught in Psalms and the book of Job. Our life is just so short. But the third truth, the one we'll end with this morning, is more important in dealing a blow to our pride than these first two. Life is uncertain, folks. And life is short. But he says at the end, our God is sovereign. You're not. The mist is not sovereign. But he says, look at verse 15. You guys are making these incredible boasts about where you're going to live and what you're going to do and how long you're going to be there. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. Life's so uncertain. You're just a mist that appears for a little while. Life's so short. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, it's up to him. That's what James is saying. Listen, you're claiming to know what you're going to do a year from now. I'm telling you, James says, that it's up to God whether you even live at all. We're not talking about your future plans or where you're going to live or what you're going to do or whether you're going to be successful. We're talking about whether you're even going to live. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. And secondarily, we will do this or that. Listen, if I, if I see you again next Sunday here at church, it's because that's the Lord's will. He, he has to agree that I even get to live another week. We're making these big boastful claims and God's like, listen, I determine not where you're going to live. I determine if you're going to live. That's my call. Your life is short and your life is uncertain, but your God is sovereign. And all of a sudden I begin to get this small view of me and this big view of God as I read through James 4. James is saying what you ought to say in your mouth and in your heart is not look at me, it's if the Lord wills. 
It's up to him to decide if I live at all, and if I do, whether I do this or that. I bring all of my plans and bring them in submission under the umbrella of if God wills. As I said, he's not condemning planning and having a strategy. What he's condemning is our independence that says, I can pull this off regardless of what God wants. I can make my plan work when and where and how long and with whom and whether it's successful. I can make that call. And James is saying, no, what you ought to be saying is, if God wants it. I'm just a mist. Church, I, I want to be a faithful mist. I want to be a wise mist. I want to be a prayerful, planning mist. But at the end of the day, I want to be a mist who takes a knee before the maker of the mist and say, you are in control. And that's not always our heart. Our pride wants us to say, I think I can pull this off. The future is unknown, life is short, plans are uncertain, so we live with a constant view toward heaven. God, I'd like to do this in your will. God, I would like to try this subject to your approval. It has to be in your will. The old Puritan pastors had a practice of ending their correspondence with two initials, DV. It was Latin, it was a Latin abbreviation for Deo Valente. It's Latin, it means God willing, if the Lord wills. So they would write letters to other Puritan pastors and they would end it rather than saying respectfully or sincerely, they would say DV, Deo Valente, Lord willing. I'll be at your church next Sunday to preach, DV. I'll raise my family in this way, in this city, and serve God here, DV. Deo Valente, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord and that can become meaningless if we don't really mean it. We don't just want to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. That can be meaningless. It has to be a heartfelt issue. I submit all of my plans and all of my dreams and all of my hopes to God's sovereign control. Let me quote Albert Barnes. He's a pastor from the mid-1800s. I love the way he said it. In a thousand ways, God can thwart our best laid schemes, for all things are under his control. We need not travel far in life to see how completely all that we have are in the hands of God or to learn how easily he can frustrate us if he pleases. Listen to this last sentence. There is nothing on which the success of our plans depends over which we have absolute control. There is nothing, therefore, on which we can base the assurance of our success but his favor. Guys, there's nothing that will determine your success in life that is under your absolute control. And James is saying we ought to live like that. Our plans should look different than the way the world makes its plans. We dream and we long and we strive and we work hard and we give our all with the heart attitude. The real, Listen, it's one thing to say if the Lord wills. That's good. But if you feel it, that's great. I feel if the Lord wills. And I'm not scared of being under that umbrella. I actually believe it's the best place to live. 
to move out from under that umbrella and make your own plans, you're forfeiting the benefit of being in his plan. So James is saying, this is an evil thing you do. This arrogance that believes I can plan when and where and how long and for what. That's evil. It's not just unwise, folks. It's wicked. Because it gives us this inflated view of ourselves and we relegate God to background in the picture or he's not in the picture at all or he's not in focus in the picture. We make sure we're in the center of the picture. And God's somewhere else. You know what James chapter 4 is actually about? It's about two different worldviews. This is a clash of worldviews. And most of the world you live in takes a different worldview than James chapter 4. Most people believe I am independent, I am in control, and I'm proud of it. That's exactly what he says is wicked here. But that's a worldview very common today. The other worldview is to say I'm not the final authority in my life. I'm not the final authority tomorrow. I'm not the final authority a year from now. I humbly make my plans under the sovereign control of my Lord. It's His providential care in my life that I'm trusting. Look back up in James chapter 4, verse 7. In verse 7, He gives us a command. Submit yourselves to God. We get down to the passage we just read and we realize that submission is in all of life. It's not just in a couple areas. We're submitting to God in all of our plans. And when you get down to verse 17, the way this passage ends, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. It's hard to figure out exactly how that verse fits into this passage about you make plans, but what you ought to be saying is if the Lord wills, I'll make these plans. And at the end, he says, hey, if there's some things you ought to be doing and you're not doing them, it's sin. So I just I tried to think through what what is that? How does that fit in the context of this passage about a big view of ourselves and a small view of God and making our plans for the future and this calculated arrogance we have about what we can and can't do? And the best I can come up with is that James is saying in verse 17, hey, you can no longer plead ignorance. I just called you in here close and said, get in here and listen to what I'm going to tell you about how important you think you are and how unimportant God is. And I'm telling you, you've got to flip that because that's wicked. And you should make your plan saying, if the Lord wills and if it's what he wants and I'm submitting to him. And now that you know that, if you don't live like that, to you it's sin. You now know the good you ought to do. You now know how you ought to look at life. You now know what your worldview ought to be. And if you're not going to do that, it's sin. Because you can no longer plead ignorance because James has just explained it to us in living color. Let me ask you this morning as we close, do, do you care about the Lord's will? This is, a, this is a passage about submitting to if the Lord wills. So let me end by just asking, do you care? about the Lord's will. All of us have hopes and plans and dreams and what we'd like this week to look like and next month to look like. But on your best days, do you really believe it, it would be way better for me and more glorifying to God if I did His will? Psalm 143.10 says, Teach me to do Your will, for You are my God. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. 
One of the greatest characteristics of true believers is that they long to do His will. We fail, and it grieves us when we fail. And we ask for forgiveness, and we find forgiveness at the cross. But is that even a a, a cry in your heart? I want to do God's will. I may fail tomorrow, and I'll beg for forgiveness again, but I intend to get up on Tuesday striving to do His will. I want to live under that umbrella. Because if that's not the heartbeat, in your chest, you, you may not know the Lord. He so changes us on the inside that even though we fail, we long to do. We cry out with Psalm 143.10, Lord, teach me to do your will for you are my God. I worry about people who would claim to be Christians and they can go their whole life and they don't care a thing about God's will. It doesn't grieve them when they fail to do it. They just march on. Some people measure success in life by how often they get their way. That's how they measure. May that not be us. May we measure success by how often God gets His way. The first time in our lives. That would be the measure of success. Not how often Doug gets his way, but how often God gets His way. And I pray that He begins to work into my heart the truths of James chapter 4 that all of it, God, is laid out before you. And I'm saying, I'll do this. I will actually live tomorrow if it's your will. May we plan for the future with a whole heart that embraces the truth. This is all subject, God, to your approval. Let me ask you this morning, do you know the Lord who has a will for your life? There's a chance you could be here, and while I think James is addressing this problem to Christians who have this arrogance about themselves and this independent living streak, you could be living life independent of God because you've never experienced His grace and forgiveness and salvation. And maybe even this morning, God has begun to work on your heart, and you're like, I have been living my will. I I keep score by how often I get my way. And Doug, you're telling me, based on what God's Word says, is that the God of the Bible has a will for my life, and you're saying it's better than my will for my life, and I need to not make my plans in submission to Him, and I've never submitted to Him. I've never experienced His love and forgiveness and salvation and become one of His children. And it could be this morning you would say, my first step in lining my life up under my sovereign God is to come to Him in faith. Listen, for us believers, we, we need a change of attitude and heart sometimes about how big we view ourselves. But some of you who might be here this morning and you don't know Christ, the first step toward that is realizing God is so big and we're so little that we have to come to Him on His terms. And He said, here's the way you come. I sent my Son to provide a way for you to come back. His death on the cross paid for our sins so that we could move back under His Lordship and follow Him. Not perfectly, but by His grace we long to. And I would just encourage you this morning as we finish up, Skylar, the pastor here, or Brian, or myself, or Larry, we would try to be the last ones to leave this room if you would want to talk to somebody about what it means to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of Christ. This is a God who loves you enough. He does have a will for you. And He would love for you this morning, if maybe for the very first time, to take a step toward that. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. You could come down and visit with us during the song as we... As we who already know the Lord sing and worship one more time this morning, you might slip down to catch one of us and say, could I visit with you about what it means to be a Christian? 
or we would stay to try to be the last ones here to talk to you about that. Let me ask you to pray with me. I'm just going to quit talking for just a moment and let you evaluate how much of this arrogant, evil attitude may slip into your heart where you believe you can plan the future and God's not in the equation. And then I'll close this in prayer and our worship team will come up and lead us again. But just you before the Lord right now, God, where am I at in these two different worldviews? Has it slipped in subtly into my heart that I think I can pull this off? And God says, why don't we rethink that today and get a small view of yourself again and a big view of me? Father, I, I confess to you this morning, this, this is a sermon that there are a lot of churches around the world today that, that wouldn't preach a message like this because they're wanting to tell people how important they are. They're wanting to tell people how wonderful they are, how big they are. They're wanting to tell people that they can chart their own course and that God's there just to bless their plans. And At Trinity, we, we believe the Bible says God's big and we're little. And we invite people back next week to come hear the same thing again, the bigness of God and the smallness of us. It doesn't mean that we're small and unimportant. We're small and you love us. Your love is incredible to us. But we confess today, God, that you're the great one. And we would like to submit our plans and our lives to Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. We will do this or that. God, remove this pride and arrogance from our heart and help us joyfully, as a mist that knows it won't be here long, joyfully bow the knee to a loving Lord who says, my plans are better than yours anyway, so submit to them. I pray we would do that. And God, if there's somebody here today that has never experienced your grace and forgiveness, may they, during this song or afterwards, catch one of us and visit with us about what it means to experience the love and grace and will of our Heavenly Father. And it's in His name we pray.